All right, we're good. Hey, that's good. We're on the we're we're flexible here. Um, it's good to be back. I, I do want to say thanks to everyone for um, for your prayers and support during the uh, the recent COVID run at the compound. Uh, I I would say it was a lot of fun, but it wasn't a lot of fun. But it was nice to uh, to have messages and support from you guys. And uh, thankfully now it seems like we're all on the recovery end of it. Jake prayed for our fatigue, which seems to be the long-standing thing, so I would appreciate continued prayers for that. <coughs> and it doesn't mean you'll get a shorter sermon just because I'm fatigued, just so you know. Sorry about that. I know you guys were hoping on a small run there, but uh, we're, we're, uh, we're moving on. Jake started last week this, this series in 2 Corinthians. We've, we've talked about mission. We're on the se- in the season of mission. And the first part of it was looking at 1 Corinthians, these large chunks of text to talk about what it meant to be on mission in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians, we've, we've kind of shrunk it down to chapters 2 to 6 to look at what, what we call a cruciform life, a life shaped by the cross. Paul's trying to, to show the Corinthians what it looks like to follow Jesus and to have a life shaped like his. And Jake did an awesome job last week showing in chapter 2 how Paul is telling people who want to be elevated people who want to have power and prestige, how the gospel calls us to be conquered by Jesus. This counterintuitive way to joy is actually surrender, to admit our own weakness and our own brokenness, to embrace what Jesus has done. It's this powerful image, you know, that we've been in this place where we were enslaved and captive to death and destruction, and that Christ has come in and conquered and taken us away from that as his captives. And yet that pathway in captivity is actually the way to real freedom. And today I want to look at it at, to continue this idea where Paul goes next to see why I've called it being conquered by Christ changes everything. He's going to draw a picture that compares life before Christ and life after Christ historically. He's going to show how that change and our being conquered by Jesus and being brought into his kingdom actually teaches us how to live. And how, then we're going to close by looking at how we do that. What is it that we need to do to actually live that out day by day? We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. I'll read that right now. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory... So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. 
Now, I'm, I'm thankful, especially with COVID brain, for shorter chunks of text. But Paul, Paul starts in this passage in verses 7 to 11, uh, and he's talking about two types of what he calls ministry. The ministry of the law, he says, that was chiseled into stone, and the ministry of the Spirit. It's really the two covenants, the Old Testament law, uh, the way of relating to God through the law in the Old Testament, and the coming of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit in the New Testament. And he wants the readers to know that this is a comparison between a covenant that fades and one that lasts. A covenant that fades and one that lasts. Last week he, he talked about the freedom that comes from being taken captive by Jesus. It was a shift in thinking for these Corinthians, right? They, they felt that captivity or weakness or brokenness or humility was never good. And this week he shows them, he says, this place of brokenness and weakness and captivity actually has more glory than the place you were before. He's riffing off the Old Testament story when Moses got the Ten Commandments, the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Verse 29, it starts saying, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. Paul takes them, these, these, his listeners in Corinth, to this place of loss and weakness and captivity to Christ. But he says this place, this place of loss and weakness is actually more glorious than what you've had before. The old way of relating to God, the one that was chiseled into those stone tablets, was something glorious, so much so that Moses' face lit up, but it was limited. It, the law, he said, brought death and condemnation. Death and condemnation. And he says it quite bluntly in verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, if that first way of relating to God brought death, the law can only show us where we've gone wrong, where we failed. And in verse 9, he says, if the ministry that condemns men and women does this, then how much greater the one we have now? See, the, the law was glorious for sure. It lit up the face of Moses. That had to be quite something to see, right? But all the law did was expose the problem. It was powerless to change us and to save us. The law was the, the bringer of the diagnosis. The law was like the doctor saying you have cancer, but it couldn't do anything else. Or the mechanic saying your, your transmission's gone, your motor's blown. It's, it's the diagnosis, but it doesn't do anything for us other than let us know the truth about ourselves. And it's good to know the truth. It's good to know the reality, but it's not enough. And Paul says the old way was glorious. It said God's not leaving us alone. He's not ignoring us. But compared to the new way, the, the glory's fading. He says it's nothing compared to the new way because this new way of the Spirit brings life and righteousness. Verse 8, he says the ministry of the Spirit will be even more glorious, bringing life instead of death. And in verse 9, this ministry that brings righteousness, right? That this, this new way that God's doing things since Jesus came and the Spirit was given to us just puts the old way to shame. It's, it's nothing in comparison. And what Paul's saying here about life and righteousness, we use that term righteousness. I want, I want to take a minute and just explain it because we often boil it down to a status, 
Like, you know, like you've, you've got a sticker on that you voted today or you got your vaccine and, and now that you've come to Jesus, you're righteous. It's a sticker on you and it, and it keeps it there. It's, it's a status. But, but that word, that, that Greek word, diakosune, actually means a way of living. It's, it's right living. So he's not just saying we've been declared righteous. He's saying that actually in this new way of the spirit, we can begin to walk in righteousness, in justice. It's not a stamp or a status. When I was in, uh, a freshman in college, I went and I visited my brother in Morocco for three weeks. Little Beth Giles was two years old and about that tall and quite a handful at that time. I'll tell you stories if you want more stories. Um, but we, we went to Morocco. On the way there, we had a six-hour layover in the Netherlands in the Amsterdam airport. And when I got home, I remember looking at my passport and I had a stamp saying I'd been to the Netherlands and I had a stamp saying I'd been to Morocco. But, but the stamp for the Netherlands was a status. I, didn't, I was in the airport for six hours. I didn't go look at anything. I didn't engage with anybody. I just was waiting for the next flight. It was, it was a status. But the one in Morocco actually lived with, among the people I walked. I had dinner in Moroccan homes. I talked with people. I got to experience life. See, very often we see as righteousness as this stamp that says, okay, you're forgiven. But what, what he's saying here, the reason this new covenant is more glorious, it's not just a status, it's a way of life. It's a whole different thing. And, and this comparison with the shiny face of Moses only points out that this new way of being conquered by Christ leads to a gloriously unfading glory. Just look at that phrasing in verse 10 and verse 11. For what was glorious, this old covenant, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? He's talking about comparing the two and that the old one was fading, but the other one is, is so much greater. There was a movie my senior year in high school, 1986, called Crocodile Dundee. We just found out this morning that Jake was one year old when that movie came out. I was graduating from high school. But there's the, the story is, you may have seen the movie, a reporter from the New York Times goes to the Australian Outback to interview this kind of folk hero, Crocodile Dundee. And she's so intrigued by him that she invites him to come back to New York um, to finish the interview. And obviously there's a romantic relationship going on there. But there's a scene in the movie where they're walking through the streets of New York uh, the two of them, and uh, there's an attempted mugging. I'll just ask Reed to play that scene. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. At the end, he said, just kids having fun. But I, I love that clip. That's not a knife. This is a knife because that's what Paul's saying. You think the old one was glory. That's not glory. This, this is glory. This is the difference here. This is bigger and better and more profound in so many ways. It makes me laugh to see that because I think Paul's doing the same thing. That's not even glory anymore. You can't even consider that glory. I, I think of 
one of my favorite services we do every year, and I can't wait to do it this Christmas because we'll be back in the building, is our Christmas Eve service. And, and at the end of the service, if you've been here, you, the room is dark and we, we have the Christ candle lit up front and we light our candles off the Christ candle and it spreads and up into the balcony and then the whole room lights up from the candles and it's just a powerful moment to see how the light of Christ spreads through the world. And it's, it's always interesting to me because at, at the end, we turn on all the lights and all of a sudden the candles aren't even noticeable anymore. Right? And that's what Paul's saying. It's like the floodlight of God's glory has drowned out everything that was glorious before. You don't even notice it. Even though the weakness and the conquered state that we are supposed to be in, that we are in, appears to be a state of loss, it's actually a glory that will never fade away. See, verse 7 talks about the fading glory, that Moses' face would fade over time. But, but this is different, the glory that lasts. And we've, Jake and I have both talked about that, that Hebrew word for glory, kavod. It's the heaviness of the actual presence of God. It's, it's, it's who he is in, his, in a full experience of it. That's what this glory is that weighs us. It, it's, it's the heaviness of God. I, I remember when, when Angela was first pregnant with our first child, Becca, and I, I mean, we were excited and surprised. What do you know? You have no clue what, what to expect when, when you're having a baby. But I remember going to the hospital near our home for the ultrasound and uh, didn't expect, I thought it was going to be cool. It's an ultrasound. And we, then you see those little legs kicking and you hear that boom, 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 the heartbeat. And I actually, I, I had to sit down. I've never had that experience in my life, but the heaviness of the fact that there was another human being that I was going to be responsible for coming into the world just it overwhelmed me and that's this idea of heaviness this this glory of God this ever increasing the actual experience of the presence and power and love and grace and mercy of God has entered the world and true glory calls for a different response this true and unfading glory that comes from Jesus shifts everything. The full weight of God and his goodness and grace has penetrated the world. And because of that, because everything has been covered by the glory of God, we can live from a different place. One where we're accepted. One where we're forgiven. One where we're in this process of being transformed to be like Christ. And, and Paul wants to show them the ironic truth of how being conquered leads to boldness. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, and he's going to talk about the hope in verse 17 and 18. We'll get there. He says, but since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What does that mean? Well, we're, we're bold enough to handle the truth about ourselves. We can be weak. We can lose. We don't, we don't have to cover up for our sin. We don't have to hide behind an image that makes us look better to the world. It says the glory of God is actually transforming us. And that means we can live in what I call full exposure instead of glory management. Full exposure instead of glory management. The text in, verse, in Exodus 34 continues with an interesting point. It says in Exodus 34, when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face 
until he went in to speak with the Lord. See, Moses would come out from the presence of the Lord, his face would be glowing, and he would speak. And it's this powerful image of God's glory reflecting through Moses. You know, it, it must have been really weird. Can you imagine if, like Monica, on Touched by an Angel, all of a sudden it started glowing up here? That would, be, that would make an impact, right? But then he would cover it up, it says. Why, why would he cover it up? Well, our text today tells us why. In verse 12, it says, He would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. See, that moment of power and hearing the word of God and Moses speaking with the glowing face, it was going to fade over time. It says the Israelites could not look steadily at it because they were afraid, even though the glory was fading. So Moses, when he finished talking, he would cover his face so that they wouldn't see it fade. He had to manage the glory that he had for maximum benefit. He, he, couldn't be, he couldn't have people start talking about, hey, look, you're, the glory's fading. He's not quite as bright as he was. Maybe we don't need to listen to him as much as we did before. He had to manage the glory he had. And we do the same. You know, we, we try to put our best foot forward when we're representing God. We want to have the answers for people. <laughs> we want to look good. We want to be persuasive. So we veil the darker parts of life or we veil the darker parts of ourselves. And, and it's, it's a good motive. I think we want to keep people interested in God and we think if they see that about me, it doesn't make a lot of sense that they would be interested in my God. But see, what we're trying to do is manage the glory. And it goes back to a place where the glory of God becomes dependent on us and our ability, on us and our righteousness. And it's only a small step from that <laughs> to seeking to elevate ourselves, which was the struggle in Corinth, these people that wanted to be important, to look powerful or put together, to look like a super apostle. See, the very act of doing this, of this glory management, shows we're going right back to that old way of the law chiseled in stone, to measuring up, to evaluating ourselves against others to trying to do it all right. Paul says, that's the old way of glory. That fades, guys. But Jesus came to give us this new way of living, a new way of empowering our actions, a new way of knowing God through the Spirit. And the Spirit reveals Jesus and outshines the law. The Spirit reveals Jesus and outshines the law. He talks about that. Even to this day, he says, the same veil remains when people focus only on the law of Moses. It makes their minds dull. It, it shapes their hopes in smaller ways. It causes them to hide their struggles and their failures. But Paul says in verse 14, in Christ it's taken away. When, verse 16, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And this glory is different, he says, because it does not fade. It outshines the law. Paul, Paul's saying, guys, being captured by Christ, as weird as it sounds, opens the door to a whole new way of seeing God and of seeing the world, of seeing other people, and of seeing ourselves. We have these two ways of being in the world. This old covenant of the law where we have to measure up. Where we hide our faults. Or we have this new way of the spirit. And we, we, we have to make the choice of how we 
are going to function in the world. And in verse 16 to 18, he says, the call is to keep our focus. The call is to keep our focus. See, the challenge is that our world is wired the old way. We're locked into achievement and reward ways of thinking and living. We talk about the grace of God in church. We talk about it all the time. And we're so thankful for the grace of God and his forgiveness. And yet we still live in this fading glory way of the law. But if we can focus differently, if we can focus on Christ, then he begins to work in us through the Spirit, setting us free, changing us into his own glory. We've all heard Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, this was Paul's call to Corinthians, to the Corinthians, to stop looking at an image, at themselves, at their own ability to do and to perform and to achieve, at trying to elevate themselves over others. That was his message. Stop looking there and look to Christ. And, and his message even today is a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for all of us. It's not these two ways of seeing reality aren't some theological concept from 2,000 years ago. It's something that you and I, or at least I can say I live with it, every single day because we're born into this world and a way of thinking that grounds our identity in achievement. In North America, our identity is based on what we do and what we have. You know, you go to some other cultures, more, more uh, Eastern cultures, where shame is more and honor is more the, the dynamic. It's still in a matter of achieving. You know, uh, these, these children need to please and honor their family, bring honor, not shame. They need to please their parents. And their identity is given to them because they've achieved, because they've accomplished something. But the gospel says identity is not achieved. Identity is received. Jesus gives you your identity by Christ in him alone. That's, that is what makes you who you are. Such a contrary way to the, the way they were thinking and living in Corinth. It's all through the New Testament. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 1, 6 and 7, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He says to the Galatians, you're trying to measure up. You're trying to do the right things. And later on in chapter 3 of Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 3, he says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? See, the, Paul's saying these two ways, this law and this Spirit, are radically different concepts But when you begin to grasp life by the Spirit, when you begin to taste it, it changes everything. In fact, he says in verse 17, it sets you free. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does it mean to be free? It means you are free to be weak, you are free to receive, and you're free to reflect. Free to be weak, free to receive, and free to reflect. See, we don't have to live by achievement, by comparison. That's not what our identity is based on. We're free from that. We don't have to to live by, by glory management, by making ourselves look good so that God looks good. 
We don't have to live and be, and, and by image control. That's why Paul says, I can be weak. I can be un, unimpressive because it's not about my ability to make the law work for me so that you guys are impressed. It's not about my talent, says Paul. It's not about my strength or my eloquence. That's all the old kind of glory. That's going to fade. See, what, what he's saying is we've moved from our ability to try to keep the law to the gift of grace by the Spirit of God. A different way that leads to life instead of death. A movement from condemnation on one side to empowerment and transformation on the other. And this is a solidly biblical idea that we live over here in the realm of the Spirit. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death and look at that it says now there's no condemnation right now there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus we are free to fail (laughs) we're free to be weak we're free to receive from God No condemnation, and we all struggle with that. (laughs) Because condemnation and guilt and fear, that's how the world seeks to motivate and change behavior. I mean, that's how we do it with our kids. (laughs) Fear, guilt, shame. We try to motivate behavior. That's the way the whole world is wired. But, But it doesn't work. How many of you, because of the shame of your sin, have actually been able to leave your sin behind? That doesn't, the old way doesn't bring life, only the new. In 1 John, he writes, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are right now. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has yet not been made known, but we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, this, this whole idea is this understanding of the grace and forgiveness of God, this law of the Spirit, Paul says. That it transforms us, this hope of the true glory. This is what calls us to live differently. And, and you say, but this just seems too easy, Jeff. Won't people take advantage of that? There's no condemnation. right? If, if it really is as good as you say and that God loves us and accepts us as we are and we don't have to be afraid to hide our sin, isn't that just going to be people taking advantage of that? Won't they just do whatever they want? Well, Paul doesn't seem very concerned about that. He says we're free to be weak. We're free to receive. And then in what verse 18 says, we are free to reflect. See, we're opening all that we are. It says we with unveiled faces are opening up ourselves to this glory of God, and that's what changes us. You see, Paul says the reflecting does the perfecting. Look at what happens in verse 18. We see Jesus through the Spirit. We gaze on his glory with our face wide open, nothing hidden. 
and we see his grace, his love, his forgiveness, and mercy. And it says, as we do that, we begin to reflect the glory of God to the world. As we see who he is and receive from him, that gets reflected to the world. And that's really the purpose way back in Genesis 1. He created male and female in his image, in his zelim, that they would reflect who he is to his creation. And as we do that, as we look at who Christ is and receive his grace, forgiveness, love, mercy, that reflects out of us to the world. Because when you receive those kind of things, it transforms you. You realize everything that you have is a gift from God, and you're willing to extend that to the world around you. You reflect it. And it says then, as we do this, we are transformed into his image. We begin to look like Jesus. Not because we're working so hard to keep the law, not because we're hiding the dark spots so that we can sell the gospel to people, but because as we open ourselves fully and let the grace of God penetrate who we are, the world sees who he is, and that begins to transform us. And it's all from God. And not only does it not fade, did you see what it says? It's ever-increasing glory. Moses covers up because it's going to fade away, but we just leave it wide open because the more we show, the more people see the glory of God in an increasing way. A gift. So, Jeffrey, are you saying the key to transformation is taking off the veil of hiding who we are and focusing on Jesus and his grace and his love for us? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's what Paul's saying. It's what Paul said in Titus. In Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God, this, is, this has to be one of my life verses, people. If you haven't heard this verse, you haven't ever heard me preach, I'm afraid. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, what does that grace do? It says, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What teaches me to change, to turn from my sin? The grace of God. Not the guilt that I feel, not the shame that I feel, not the, the things that the law brings out in me. It's the grace of God. It's his love and forgiveness that actually makes me different. I don't want to sin because of the love that's been extended to me. It's such a countercultural message. It's, it's, it's the truth of the gospel. And the call for you and I is to keep focusing on Jesus, on who he is, on how he is to us. And let that reflect to the world around us. I'll close with a story from Timothy Paul Jones in his book, Proof. He, uh, his middle daughter is adopted. And he tells a story about taking his family to Disney World in Florida. The, the, the daughter that they adopted, for whatever reason, was adopted previously by another family and never really integrated into that family. So they dissolved the adoption, and, and Tim picked the, and his wife adopted her after a failed adoption. Well, as, as they, after she was in their home, uh, she told a story of how her previous family would go to Disney World but they would never take her. They took the biological children, but they didn't take the adopted daughter. That just shows she wasn't integrated. She stayed with a friend while they would go to Disney World. So she had seen pictures and heard stories about Disney World, but had never experienced it. And Timothy says, you know, I, I decided she, we were going. Next time we had to go to Florida for a speaking engagement or whatever, I was taking her. We were all going to Disney World. 
He said he thought he had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. But he says, what I didn't expect was the month before we were to go to Disney World that, that this adopted, the middle daughter, began to spiral out of control. She stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, the mutinies multiplied, he says. And a couple days before they were to go to Florida, he pulled the, this daughter up onto his lap and she said, I know what you're going to do, she said. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And he said the thought hadn't actually crossed his mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before, so she was living in such a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. And he says he was tempted to say, yes, you better straighten up and fly right. But he says, by the grace of God, he didn't. He said to her, is, is this trip something we're doing as a family? And her eyes kind of brimmed up with tears, and she nodded. Are you a part of this family, he said, and she nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. And he writes, I'd like to say her behaviors grew better after that moment, but they didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe we'll go again someday. And in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and said, how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes. She snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. See, that is the message of outrageous grace. And we, we work so hard to try to be good enough to get what God wants for us. <laughs> And, and it, the glory just fades. We try to measure up. We hide our faults. We try to present our best foot forward and try to make everybody think we've got it all together. And all that's doing is stirring up fading glory. It's not because we're good, Paul says. It's because we're God's. It's because we belong to him. It's because there's a new way. There's a spirit living in us that sets us free. And the call is to see that, to see all of life through that window, that everything we have is by the grace of God. And as we, we begin to be transformed by that, and we just want to share that grace with everybody else, it's an incredible message that we're loved not because we're good, but because we're God's. And, and that will change your behavior. That will shape you to be a different person. That's, that's the one where we see the glory of God, we reflect it with ever-increasing glory, and he changes us into his image. Let's pray. God, we, we are not good. 
But thankfully, by the grace of God, by the cross, the resurrection, by your gift of faith even to us, we are yours. And we get so overwhelmed and, and weighed down by our own failures. And we look to this way of the law and the way of the world says that we achieve to, to matter. And God, we just ask today that we could stop looking that way and we could look at you. And look at your grace and your forgiveness and your love and your mercy. And your ability to, to carry us when we can't even carry ourselves. And God, transform us. Help us receive that glory from you. Help us reflect it to the world around us and make us look more and more like Jesus each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen. It's all a matter of focus and perspective. It really is. And thanks, Tim, for choosing. Tim chose so many songs about looking to Jesus, right? You know, when you look to the law, you end up just looking back to yourself and your own failings. When you look to Jesus, you're, you're enveloped, you're accepted, and I, I, sing those songs all week long to keep that in your mind. I would challenge you for, for homework. I would say, take that passage from 1 John 3, 1 to 3, write it on a card, memorize it this week. Just listen to what it says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. That's my prayer for you this week, that you can, instead of looking at the law and your own failure, and you know, you've got that voice of condemnation in your head, Scripture says there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop looking at that. Stop looking at yourself and look at the grace and love and mercy of Jesus and allow him to reflect that to the world through you. Amen.